Welcome to today's program, Assessing the Role of Omega-3s for Cardiovascular Risk Reduction in Patients with Dyslipidemia, uh, and, and this is a managed care perspective. So program information, today's program is approved for one CME, CNE, or CPE credit. Uh, you will be redirected back to the landing page after the webinar to complete the post-test and evaluation you can then download or print your certificate. The program is approved and provided by the North American Center for Continuing Med Medical Education, LLC, an HMP company, and Horizon CME. This program is supported by an educational grant from Ameren Pharma, Inc. My name is Eric Cannon. I'm currently the Assistant Vice President of Pharmacy Benefits with Select Health an Intermountain Healthcare Company in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I'm joined today by Dr. Bott, Executive Director of Interventional Cardiovascular Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital Heart and Vascular Center. And he's also a professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. So today's learning objectives. Summarize the clinical and economic impact of cardiovascular disease on the U.S. healthcare system. Discuss the residual risk of cardiovascular events in patients with dyslipidemia. Review the latest clinical evidence with omega-3 fatty acids for the prevention of cardiovascular events in high-risk patients. And finally, identify appropriate patients for omega-3 fatty acids and discuss the costs and benefits of treatment. So I will uh, start things off and we'll talk about the clinical and economic impact of cardiovascular disease on the U.S. healthcare system. So let's start with the epidemiology of cardiovascular disease. So cardiovascular disease is common in the general population, affecting the majority of adults past the age of 60. Uh, in 2012 and 2013, uh, cardiovascular disease was estimated to have resulted in 17.3 million deaths worldwide, and that's on an annual basis. Uh, the lifetime risk for individuals at age 40 uh, was 49% in men and 32% in women. Uh, and, and the piece, I guess, that's really interesting to me is even those that were free of coronary heart disease at age 70 had a non-trivial lifetime risk of developing coronary heart disease. And, and that was 35% for men and 24% for women. So what is the impact on the American population? Well, we know that coronary heart disease specifically uh, is responsible for one in every seven American deaths. And when we look at that, that's about 370,000 deaths each year. Uh, the other thing, and, and as we start really kind of focusing on our patients, looking at different disparities in healthcare, cardiovascular disease is the greatest contributor to racial disparity as far as lifetime expectancy is concerned. So let's look at the global burden of cardiovascular disease. So cardiovascular disease remains the leading cause of death in most developed countries. Uh, mortality from acute MI appears to have decreased by as much as 50% in the 90s and 2000s, but this still remains one of the leading causes of death uh, across the world. Uh, in the United States, uh, approximately 1.5 million people suffer a heart attack or a stroke annually, and, and that's going to result in about 250,000 deaths. Uh, 
Between 1990 and 2010, it's estimated that the global burden of coronary heart disease increased by 29%. Now, this was due uh, to different increases in therapy, so we're identifying more patients. And we also know that the population is living longer uh, with the disease. So we've got longevity, and then we've got general growth of the global population. In the managed care world, one of the things that I spend a lot of time doing is uh, meeting with employers. And most employers are, are focused on what healthcare is costing them, uh, but more and more employers are looking at what's the productivity of their employees, uh, what's the amount of days of work they may be missing as a result of a, a current disease or some type of disease. So one of the things that we know is that Cardiovascular disease will cost an employer uh, nearly 60 hours a year uh, and over $1,100 more beyond those 60 hours in lost productivity. And, and that's when you compare that with an employee that doesn't have cardiovascular disease. Uh, the research is very clear. Uh, Heart-healthy employees have better morale. We know they're going to be at work more, so they're going to let miss less work and they're going to be more productive uh, than less healthy employees. Now, this is what's interesting to me, is expenses associated with cardiovascular disease are expected to surpass medical costs estimated for other chronic diseases. So this would include things that we know drive a lot of costs today, such as diabetes and Alzheimer's disease. Uh, as we continue on and, and talk about Uh, worksite impact. Uh, employees suffering from heart disease, and one of the things we talked about is the number of days they've missed, but we know that they're going to require additional days and be significantly less productive. Uh, in, in 2010, an estimated 41, almost $42 billion dollars in potential productivity was lost due to the morbidity of cardiovascular disease. Uh, and $137 billion was lost due to premature deaths caused by cardiovascular disease. So at, at our plan and, and many plans uh, across the country, uh, we, we have uh, significant involvement in different government programs. So we, we have a fairly diversified portfolio that includes Medicare and Medicaid, uh, and we know that cardiovascular disease plays a significant role in those populations. So if we look at the Medicare population, uh, 30% of Medicare expenditures were the result of cardiovascular disease, and 53% of individuals that are enrolled in Medicaid suffer from some type of heart disease. Uh, so we've got the burden on the patient or the burden on the member. Uh, we've talked about the costs of this, so we, we've got a significant burden on the general U.S. economy. And then as we talk about government programs, those are, those are funded by all of us through our taxes. So, again, cardiovascular disease, big burden on all of us as taxpayers. What does that mean when we sum it up? Well, heart disease has a huge effect on the U.S. economy. When I started... Uh, in my role many years ago, uh, statin therapy was just starting to really uh, come onto the market. And it was after uh, the 4S trial that 
we as a company really started the promotion of statin therapy so that we could lower uh, LDL cholesterol. Well, approximately 28% of adults in the U.S. have high LDL cholesterol, and a third or more have either high triglycerides or low HDL. Uh, so what does that mean? About 50% of adults have at least one lipid abnormality. I mentioned the 4S trial. So the 4S trial studied patients that had very high LDL cholesterol and known coronary heart disease. Uh, a significant risk reduction was observed in those patients that were on statin therapy. Uh, but more importantly, even though we saw this relative risk of a cardiovascular event decrease by almost a third, uh, the results from the 4S also indicated that over the study's duration, almost 20% of statin-treated patients had a cardiovascular event. So let's take a little time and let's talk a little bit about prevention. We've only got one bullet on this slide, but I think uh, this is something that many of us hear about every day, uh, either from our children or our spouses. Uh, so the CDC estimates that 34% of deaths caused by heart disease could have been prevented by modifying different risk factors. And, and those include modifying things or treating things like hypertension, uh, hyperlipidemia. We saw in the 4S trial where if we modify that uh, LDL cholesterol, if we decrease it, we know we prevent deaths. Uh, but controlling diabetes, uh, stopping smoking, uh, and then two of my favorite that I hear about every day are, are the poor diets that we have and the sedentary lifestyle. So uh, really, there's a lot that goes into heart disease that can be prevented. Uh, a lot of it mainly by getting up, moving around, and eating better. So where do we anticipate uh, coronary heart disease going uh, and, and what, are the, what are the costs going to be? Well, in 2015, the costs from coronary heart disease were about $90 billion. Uh, that's projected in 2035 to be $215 billion. Uh, indirect costs uh, in 2015, so this would be the lost productivity, the absenteeism, uh, all of those things that go into the indirect costs. In 2015, that was almost $100 billion, $99 billion uh, was spent in these indirect cost areas. Uh, in 2035, it's going to be $151 billion. So we're, we're going to see direct costs over the next probably 15 years uh, increase by about $115 billion on the direct side and roughly $50 billion on the indirect side. So where are we spending our money? Uh, so between 2012 and 2030, uh, we've already talked about the fact that uh, costs are gonna go up. Uh, on the previous slide, we were talking about coronary heart disease. Now we're talking more globally about cardiovascular disease, but uh, when we look at cardiovascular disease, costs are projected to increase from about $400 billion to just over $900 billion. And how does that break down? Where are those costs going to happen? Well, 60% of those costs are gonna come from hospitalizations. 16% uh, 
are going to come from medications. So we've accounted for, in just two items, hospitalizations and medications, we've accounted for 75% of the costs associated with cardiovascular disease. So rounding out that final quarter, or 25% of the costs, we have physicians accounting for about 11% of it, nursing home, uh, about 11%, and home health uh, at about 5%. So in summary, before I finish up my portion uh, of today's presentation, uh, costs for cardiovascular disease will continue to rise. Uh, we saw where the projections uh, by 2035 uh, are fairly significant. Uh, even when we treat our patients, so even when we do everything we know we should to lower their cholesterol, to focus on that LDL level, we know that there is still residual cardiovascular risk that is present in a lot of our patients. Uh, risk factors are preventable. Uh, we know, as we talked, if we modify our diet, if we move, uh, if we treat our diabetes, if we control our hypertension, uh, we can prevent some of the negative complications of cardiovascular disease. And, and then finally, there are serious economic impacts to government programs, employers, and to all of us in the general population. If we think about the growth that will happen in Medicare as we continue to expand Medicaid, uh, these are costs that will be borne by all of us uh, in the general population. That concludes my portion of the presentation. I'm going to turn it over now to Dr. Bott. Well, thank you very much. It's really a great pleasure for me to be able to speak on the topic of the role of omega-3s for cardiovascular risk reduction in patients with dyslipidemia. Statins have been an incredible advance in cardiovascular medicine, but it's important to step back and realize that statins do not prevent all ischemic events. As shown on this slide, there have been a series of trials through the years that have shown the benefits of statins in secondary prevention, in primary prevention, at least in the higher risk end of the spectrum, statins definitely beat placebo, but even beyond that, high-intensity statins beat more modest-intensity statins. So for sure, statins and intense statins, intense lipid lowering, intense LDL reduction reduces ischemic events, but there is still residual risk remaining. In fact, Looking at the slide, you can see, even though statins have a significant impact, there's still substantial residual risk left. That is, the event rates are still pretty high across all these trials, across all these eras in which patients have been studied. Now, in that context, potentially part of that residual risk might be explained by triglycerides if they are indeed a causal risk factor. They're certainly a risk marker there is no question that patients with elevated triglycerides are at higher risk of ischemic events. But is it that triglyceride elevation per se that is directly causal in a way that LDL cholesterol is directly causal? That is, does that triglyceride level actually contribute to coronary artery disease? In this editorial, Dr. Libby makes the argument that triglycerides are indeed a causal risk factor. And I think there's a lot of evidence supporting that, including some recent Mendelian randomization data. So the weight of evidence, the seesaw, has tipped towards supporting that triglycerides are not only risk markers, but 
risk factors. And a variety of different studies, which for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all of them, but a really large amount of data support that elevated triglycerides increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. The particular studies here show that as the triglycerides get higher, so too does the risk of developing cardiovascular disease. In the PROVE-IT study, for example, we see that patients, despite having good LDL control in this particular analysis, patients with an LDL cholesterol less than 70 milligrams per deciliter on a statin, nevertheless, if their triglycerides are elevated, they still are at substantial risk of future ischemic events. So even in the presence of well-controlled LDL cholesterol, triglyceride elevation does appear to demarcate increased risk. There are several promising therapies for hypertriglyceridemia that are being evaluated. Lots of interesting things, monoclonal antibodies, antisense oligonucleotides, small interfering ribonucleic acid, lots of great science going on. Then we'll have to see if it pans out in terms of actual benefits and, and good safety profiles and so forth. But what we do have now for treating hypertriglyceridemia are omega-3 fatty acids. They do lower triglycerides. And speaking of fancy therapies, uh, this is some very recent work, a new approach to targeting RNA to lower triglycerides. And in the accompanying editorial, we called it long strides from short molecules, scientifically a huge advance. But still, it'll take some time before this particular compound and other similar compounds can work their way through clinical trials and see if the reductions in triglycerides, the large reductions in triglycerides, these sorts of compounds provide, translate into reductions in cardiovascular events. So we'll see. But in the meantime, the omega-3 story has been an interesting and evolving one. Now, it's important to review all the data to date, and this meta-analysis looked at low-dose omega-3 mixtures and found no significant cardiovascular benefit. So I guess you could say data that are pretty negative, not in terms of safety, but no benefit. So a pretty consistent story with respect to low-dose omega-3 mixtures and cardiovascular effects and lack of cardiovascular benefit. Two more recent trials have examined the issue, the ASCEND trial and the VITAL trial. Let me start with the ASCEND trial. This was a very well-done study by Oxford University. It took 15,000-plus patients with diabetes with no known atherosclerotic disease and randomized them to an omega-3 fatty acid, one gram a day, a mixture of EPA and DHA, or to placebo. And they were followed for an average of about seven and a half years, so large, long-term study. But as you can see in this slide, over the course of several years, no significant benefit of the omega-3 fatty acid preparation used in this trial versus a placebo. The VITAL trial came next, and this, too, was a trial of primary prevention, 25,000-plus people randomized well, it was a factorial design. They were randomized to vitamin D or placebo. That part was negative for cardiovascular benefit, but the part relevant to today's discussion was the factorial design randomization to a placebo or an omega-3 fatty acid, one gram a day of a mixture, again, of EPA plus DHA. 
And similar to what was seen in Ascend, once more, long-term study, well done, large number of patients, but no significant benefit of the omega-3 that was studied here versus placebo. Now, in contradistinction to all that, and we need to go back a little bit in time, was the JELUS trial. And this was a trial published in The Lancet in 2007, very well done, uh, done in Japan. It was all Japanese patients. Patients were randomized to EPA or control. And there was a 19% relative risk reduction for EPA, eicosapentaenoic acid, omega-3 fatty acid. The benefits were consistent in the primary prevention and secondary prevention cohort. So overall, I would say a, a win. Now, there were three major limitations to this trial that I think kept it from being adopted in actual clinical practice. The first was that it was just Japanese patients, and there were concerns about whether the results would be generalizable to other populations, to Western populations. It's a legitimate question. The second limitation was the statins that were used in this trial were relatively low doses of weak statins, low doses of provostatin, simvastatin. Now, I'm not sure that is entirely a fair criticism because at the time patients were being enrolled into this trial, especially in a place like Japan, you know, that was the standard of care. And there's really no reason to think that an EPA-based mechanism of action would be diminished uh, because of the presence or absence of statins or more potent statins. So I'm not sure that was really such a limitation, but I suppose a fair point. And the third limitation, which from a trialist's perspective was the biggest, was that it was an open-label trial. So it was randomized, yes, but it was open-label, meaning that there actually wasn't a placebo. So patients were randomized either to get EPA or not to get EPA. And sometimes there's concerns that in that type of open-label trial, bias can inadvertently creep in. So in this case, I'm not really sure how or why bias would have creeped in, but it's always a point that's raised about open-label trials, and there's no way to completely rebut it. Now, the fact that it was just done in Japan, to me, actually strengthens the results. The dose that was used in the study of EPA was 1.8 grams a day, and I'll come back to why dose is important later. But that dose worked in Japanese patients who one would expect on average would have higher baseline EPA levels from higher fish intake on average to generalize than Western populations. So despite having higher baseline EPA levels, giving them just 1.8 grams a day still provided benefits. So one might think that in a Western population who has lower baseline EPA levels, if we gave an even higher dose of EPA, that the benefits seen here would be met or even surpassed. And those were some of the thoughts behind the planning of the REDUCE it trial. But I'll come back to that later. Let me first say a little bit more about EPA and DHA. Now, these are omega-3 fatty acids, of course, but they seem to have different effects on cellular membranes. This is some nice basic science work done by Preston Mason's lab at Harvard. And what he's found is that EPA integrates into cellular membranes in a way that helps stabilize cell membranes. And that can have other good effects. It can inhibit formation of arachidonic acid. It can have good effects in 
inhibiting LDL oxidation. So overall, it seems like EPA should have cardiovascular benefit. DHA, on the other hand, increases LDL cholesterol. It integrates into cell membranes in a way that seems to be disruptive instead of stabilizing. So there are a number of reasons, some of which are theoretical, that support that EPA might be better than DHA as far as omega-3 fatty acids for cardiovascular protection. That's not to say DHA isn't useful in life. You know, for example, uh, little uh, babies uh, need uh, DHA for neuronal development. It's in infant formula. So there's good things that DHA does too. But for adults, where the goal is trying to prevent cardiovascular disease or prevent recurrent cardiovascular events, primary or secondary prevention there, it seems like EPA uh, might have some advantages over DHA based on these and other data. So these observations, some basic science, some from epidemiology, which I didn't review, uh, some from the JELUS trial, that led to the icosapentethyl clinical program. And icosapentethyl is a pure EPA. It was studied first in the marine trial, bit over 200 patients with triglycerides greater than 500, but less than 2,000, so severe hypertriglyceridemia, who were randomized to icosapentethyl or to placebo, uh, and it showed a significant reduction in triglycerides. Uh, that led to the FDA approval of icosapentethyl for people with triglycerides greater than 500, where their triglycerides couldn't be controlled with diet and other sorts of things. So uh, that is what led to icosapentethyl being available by prescription. Next came the ANCHOR trial, and that examined patients who had triglycerides that were high, but not as high as marine, so between 200 and 500, and on statins. And that trial as well showed a significant reduction in triglycerides. But those were studies looking at icosapentethyl as a triglyceride-lowering drug. Next came REDUCE-IT, and this was a cardiovascular outcome trial. The goal wasn't to look at triglyceride reduction or biomarkers or surrogate endpoints, but to look at cardiovascular outcomes. Uh, but before I review REDUCE-IT, just to show you in this slide what happened in Marine, those patients with triglycerides over 500, about a 33% reduction in triglycerides. Now, if the triglycerides were even higher, say over 750, it's an even larger reduction in triglycerides, 45%, as you can see. And then for those that were on statins, it still seemed like there was a substantial reduction in triglycerides. So very effective at lowering triglycerides. Anchor, similar story, even though the baseline triglycerides were lower, still significant reductions in triglycerides with icosapentethyl versus placebo. Anyway, let's launch into now the REDUCE-IT trial. Now, this was a large study, over 8,000 patients, statin-treated with established cardiovascular disease or diabetes plus at least one risk factor uh, on a statin lead-in, a statin stabilization period of about four weeks, then randomized ticosapentethyl four grams a day, more precisely two grams twice a day, but a total of four grams a day, or to placebo followed for an average of 4.9 years. And the primary endpoint of the trial is so-called five-point MACE, or major adverse cardiovascular events, that is the composite of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, coronary revascularization, or hospitalization for unstable angina. So that was the primary endpoint of the trial. So the key inclusion criteria were having established cardiovascular disease that I'll refer to as the secondary prevention cohort, 
These are people with stable coronary artery disease, cerebrovascular disease, peripheral artery disease, or people with diabetes and at least one other cardiovascular risk factor. I'm going to call that the primary prevention cohort. About 70% in the secondary prevention, 30% in the primary prevention cohort. Patients were to have fasting triglycerides between 150 and 500, though due to issues of variability with triglycerides, we actually allow between 135 and 500, allowing a 10% variation in levels. And the LDL was supposed to be between 40 and 100. And patients should have been on stable statin therapy for at least four weeks prior to coming into the trial. So we wanted patients that were well-treated with statins and had good LDL control because we really wanted to see if there was an incremental benefit beyond good background therapy statins, other good secondary or primary prevention measures. So just to drill down a little bit more on the inclusion criteria, it was documented coronary artery disease consisting of a pretty broad uh, range of things uh, that qualified as CAD, broad documented cerebrovascular carotid disease inclusion criteria as well, and very broad documented peripheral artery disease criteria. So basically, stable atherosclerosis anywhere could get you in the trial. Or, separate from that, in the primary prevention cohort, diabetes requiring medication and age greater than or equal to 50 years of age and at least one additional cardiovascular risk factor among the list of things that I'm showing on the slide. So basically, diabetes and something else would be enough to get you in the trial in the primary prevention cohort. The exclusion criteria were severe heart failure, severe liver disease, history of pancreatitis, hypersensitivity to fish and or shellfish, because this is a marine-derived product. 19,000 patients were screened to randomize 8,179. So that's a 43% rate of screening success. That's really good. You most randomized clinical trials randomize a fraction of the patients they screen, but here it was a pretty uh, good chunk of patients that managed to get into the trial and get randomized. And then they were randomized, as I mentioned, ticosapentethyl or placebo. And the study metrics were good with 99.8% vital status known at the end of the trial. The key baseline characteristics are shown here, representative of a mixture of secondary and primary prevention, like I said, a 70-30% split. About 30% were female. Type 2 diabetes was present in approximately 58% of the population. Of course, all of the primary prevention cohort and some of the secondary prevention cohort. The median triglycerides were 216, so not particularly high when you get right down to it. Uh, the HDL was lowish, a median of 40, and the LDL at baseline was 75. So really good LDL control by contemporary standards, probably better than this population sees in real life. The triglycerides, it's interesting to note that 10% of the patients at baseline had triglycerides less than 150 milligrams per deciliter. So even though this trial is characterized as one of patients with high triglycerides. Some of the patients didn't have triglycerides that were that high. What about the rest of the background medical therapy? Really high use of antiplatelet therapy, 80%. Anticoagulants in 10%. ACE inhibitors or ARBs, 77%. Beta blockers in about 70%. And statins by protocol and design, close to 100%. So great background therapy. So these weren't just some undertreated patients where we were wanting to show an incremental benefit. We really wanted to show benefit in patients where they're already getting great 
generic therapies, you know, can we do better? Now, REDUCE, it wasn't a biomarker study, but we did examine a bunch of biomarkers, and we have even more uh, yet to examine in, in blood that's banked. But uh, significant reductions in triglycerides, as expected, that was already known, and significant reductions in a variety of different biomarkers. But the most interesting thing here, I think, is a very large increase in EPA levels, which makes sense. We're giving EPA, and the EPA level goes up by a lot. And I think that probably explains a lot of the benefit, but it could be pleiotropic effects, the reductions in triglycerides, the reductions in some inflammatory markers such as HSCRP. You know, all of these could account for a proportion of benefit. But in any rate, let me get to those benefits. What did the trial show? Well, the trial overall found a 28% rate of CV death MI, stroke, coronary revascularization, or unstable angina in the population over a median follow-up of 4.9 years. This was reduced to 23%, a hazard ratio of 0.75, a relative risk reduction of 25%, an absolute risk reduction of 5%, and a number needed to treat only of 21, and a p-value that was highly statistically significant. So very robust findings as were published uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, what about the key secondary endpoint, cardiovascular death, MI, stroke, so-called heart events? That, too, was significantly reduced from 20% to 16%, a hazard ratio of 0.74, so a 26% relative risk reduction, a 3.6% absolute risk reduction, number needed a treat of 28. So, again, uh, really good numbers there and a very significant p-value. Now, we looked at a number of different subgroups, of course, both for the primary and key secondary endpoint. And overall, the bottom line message is there was great consistency of benefit across multiple pre-specified subgroups. Some are highlighted here. If you want to see the full listing, you can look in the New England Journal of Medicine paper. But for example, consistent benefits in the secondary prevention and primary prevention cohort, consistent benefits in males and females, consistent benefits in patients from the United States and those from other countries that were in the trial, consistent benefits in those with diabetes as well as those without diabetes. So this isn't just a diabetes story. And consistent benefits, regardless of whether the baseline triglycerides were above or below 200. And interestingly, consistent benefits, even if the triglycerides were above or below 150 milligrams per deciliter at baseline. I thought that was pretty remarkable. Now, we did a pre-specified hierarchical testing. That probably doesn't matter so much for those of you uh, that are in practice, but for regulatory purposes, it can be uh, useful or necessary. And what this really means is there's a list of endpoints, and statistically speaking, you can keep going down the list until something's not significant. And if it's not significant, you're not really supposed to keep looking. But in truth, we always keep looking, as you should, because if you've collected the data, of course you're going to look. And you know, for endpoints like mortality, even if it's further down, of course you're going to see what happened to mortality. So it's mostly a regulatory construct and a statistical thing. But at any rate, the primary endpoint was significantly reduced and the secondary endpoint was significantly reduced. I already showed you that. But then any variety of composite and individual endpoints were significantly influenced by ecosapentethyl versus placebo. In fact, significant reductions a 31% reduction in fatal or non-fatal myocardial infarction. 
a 28% reduction, again, significant in fatal or non-fatal stroke, and a significant 20% reduction in death from cardiovascular causes. Also, a significant reduction in urgent or emergent revascularization, 35% relative risk reduction, and a 32% relative risk reduction hospitalization for unstable angina, again, significant. So each of the individual components of the overall composite endpoint were significantly reduced. At the bottom of the list uh, was total mortality, and there there was a trend with a p-value of 0.09 for a 13% lower rate of all-cause mortality. Now, personally, I think that would have been a significant finding if we had just continued the trial longer, but we had funding to continue it for as long as we did. And the reduction in cardiovascular death that was significant should have translated into a reduction in all-cause mortality if we kept following these patients because there was no offsetting competing cause of non-cardiovascular mortality. That is, we looked at you know, cancer and infectious disease mortality and, and that sort of thing, and the hazard ratio for non-cardiovascular mortality was one, and the cardiovascular mortality, as I mentioned, was already significantly reduced. So I think with longer follow-up, there would have been a reduction in mortality that was statistically significant. So that's really what this study shows in terms of its primary, secondary, and composite and individual endpoints. Let's talk a bit now about adverse events. In the overall trial examining treatment emergent adverse events, there was no significant difference between the two arms. It was a very well-tolerated drug in terms of tolerability and overall serious side effects. Now, there was a difference in bleeding uh, with a p-value of 0.06, the rate was 2.7% with icosapentethyl versus 2.1% over placebo over the course of that average of about five years. So a small absolute increase, but it was a trend. And my own feeling is if the follow-up had been longer, if the sample size had been larger, that p-value would have been significant. I think that's a, a real finding with respect to bleeding. There's older data that supports that, too, with omega-3. So I think that's real. But uh, fortunately, no significant excess in gastrointestinal bleeding or CNS bleeding or bleeding that the investigators thought was due to the study drug that was fatal. So uh, even though there's increase in bleeding, fortunately, it doesn't seem to be the really bad types of bleeding uh, that can occur with the anti uh, platelets or anticoagulants, or conventional antiplatelets or anticoagulants. Now, there was another adverse event that we noted, hospitalization for atrial fibrillation or flutter. This was significantly increased from 2.1% to 3.1% with a p-value of 0.004. So this was something that, again, I think is real. It was adjudicated in this uh, trial where investigators were blinded, where our adjudication committee is blinded. Uh, but in absolute terms, it's quite modest, and the biggest fear from AFib, of course, is stroke, and we didn't see any excess in stroke in the trial, as I mentioned a slide ago. In fact, we saw a significant 28% reduction in fatal or non-fatal stroke. So overall, a pretty well-tolerated drug and a good safety profile, but you should be aware of the potential for bleeding and the potential for atrial fibrillation or flutter. This analysis shown examined patients by their achieved triglycerides at one year. Before I showed you the baseline triglycerides, but here's the achieved triglycerides. And what we see here 
is that regardless of whether the patient's triglycerides got below 150 or didn't with icosapentethyl, they seem to have a similar benefit versus placebo. So what this tells us, I think, indirectly, is that at least some proportion of the benefit of this drug is likely not triglyceride-mediated. That is, there's probably something else going on here. Maybe it's the anti-inflammatory effects. Maybe it's just EPA-specific effects. Maybe it's effects that are yet to be discovered. And um, you know, these uh, data were presented as a late breaker at the American Heart Association, a late-breaking clinical trial in 2018. The discussant, Dr. Carl Oranger, in his comments, uh, put this together and put reduce it in, in context of other trials in cardiovascular medicine. And his feeling was in at-risk patients in the primary or secondary prevention universe, of course, they should be on whatever dose of statin uh, is the maximal dose they can tolerate. And then, much like azetamibe is proven from the IMPROVE-IT trial and PCSK9 inhibitors from Fourier and Odyssey to be useful in various types of patients with atherosclerosis, now icosapentenoic acid also has that same uh, level of data uh, supporting its use in patients that were studying to reduce it, uh, namely those with stable atherosclerosis or diabetes plus one additional risk factor. Now, why is it that EPA is having such a large effect in reduce it, and in fact, even going back in time in Jealous, uh, where there was a 19% relative risk reduction with a lower dose? Well, it's probably in part triglycerides, but it's probably other things too, like effects, good effects on endothelial function, uh, altering the EPA to arachidonic acid ratio in a favorable way, maybe direct effects on the plaque and plaque stability and plaque regression, maybe effects on anti-inflammatory pathways. So uh, it seems like there's probably a modest antithrombotic effect. If there's bleeding, there must be some antithrombotic effect. So probably lots of different mechanisms at play, and I think basic scientists will tease this out in years to come. How generalizable are the results of reduce it? Well, so far, there are a few analyses looking at this, and it seems like in a stable CAD population, such as from the Clarify registry of 24,000 patients with stable angina, there are about 15% of the patients would have been eligible for reduce it. Now, I should say that's an underestimate because patients, if they had an LDL, say, of 110 in this analysis, were deemed ineligible for uh, reduce it, which is true. But in real life, if someone's LDL is 110, I'm not sure that I would say, oh, the results of reduce it don't apply to them. I would try to get their LDL lower if they're um, at risk. But assuming uh, that 110 is the best that could be done for whatever reason, there's no reason to think that icosapentethyl wouldn't work in a separate pathway anyway from uh, that LDL pathway. Uh, furthermore, this was a generalizability study in CAD, but reduce it of course, enrolled patients with PAD and cerebrovascular disease and diabetes with at least one risk factor. So likely a much larger uh, swath of the secondary prevention and even diabetic primary prevention populations that would be eligible for icosapentethyl. So to conclude then, compared with placebo icosapentethyl, four grams a day significantly reduced important cardiovascular events by 25%, including a 20% reduction in death due to cardiovascular causes, a 31% reduction in heart attack, a 28% reduction in stroke, all significant. 
and a low rate of adverse effects, including a small but statistically significant increase in hospitalization for atrial fibrillation or flutter, and a non-statistically significant increase in serious bleeding, but non-fatal bleeding, not intracranial bleeding, not GI bleeding. And as I mentioned, I think even though it's not statistically significant, it's a real finding. There was consistency across multiple subgroups, including baseline triglycerides from 135 to 500, and in the secondary and primary prevention cohorts as well. So let me just uh, present some data. These are very recent data. Uh, they were presented as a late breaker at the American College of Cardiology and published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology quite recently. And what this study did was examine reduce it, but specifically look at not just the first event that someone has, but subsequent events and total events. What does that mean? Well, in the trial, of course, uh, patients were being followed over time, over the course of several years, and if they had an event, that counted as their event, and that's what we were trying to reduce with the study drug. And those events are shown here, all sorts of different things that I mentioned, things like stroke and MI, et cetera. But those patients, assuming that the first event wasn't a fatal one, remain at risk, and we continue to follow the patients and looked at their recurrent or, or subsequent events, and shown here is the distribution of those subsequent events. So there was a 25% reduction in first events. That's what I just presented a few slides back. That's what was published in the English Journal of Medicine paper. But now we see in this analysis also a significant reduction in second events, third events, and even fourth events, a 48% reduction in fourth or more events, such that in total there is a 30% reduction that's highly statistically significant in ischemic events as we follow these patients long-term. So it's not only preventing that first MI, it's also preventing that second stroke or potentially cardiovascular death. So uh, really the analyses that I presented initially, the classic time-to-first event analysis, the conservative way of looking at data, the appropriately conservative way of looking at data, underestimates the true benefits that icosapentethyl is providing this population and shown here are basically the same data, but in graphical form. Uh, time to first event shown at the bottom of the slide and total events at the top. And you can just see the magnitude, the absolute number of events being prevented when one examines not just that first event, but the subsequent events and totality of events. And it's important to realize adherence was uh, pretty good in the trial, but like all long-term trials, you know, it does uh, wane over time. It was about 80% adherence at the time of the first event. By the fourth event, you know, it's dropped down to about 69, 70%. No difference between the two arms, but uh, it does drop off with time. But what that tells me is that the results that I just showed you, which look pretty good, would likely look even better if patients had been more adherent to the therapy. And, of course, that's true of everything, statins and and antiplatelet therapy and, and, and ACE inhibitors and so forth, but it's true here as well. So those results are with this degree of adherence, and with higher adherence, the results would have been even stronger. What does this mean on a population level? Well, for every 1,000 patients treated with icosapentethyl for five years, 12 cardiovascular deaths would be averted, 42 fatal or non-fatal myocardial infarctions would be averted, 14 fatal or non-fatal strokes would be averted, 76 coronary revascularizations would be averted, 16 hospitalizations for unstable angina would be averted for a total of 159 ischemic events that would be avoided if a patient or 1,000 patients were on icosapentethyl as opposed to a placebo for five years. 
So to conclude about this part of the reduced total events analysis compared with placebo, icosapentethyl 4 grams a day significantly reduced total cardiovascular events by 30%, including significant 25% reductions in first events, 32% reductions in second events, 31% reduction in third events, and 48% reduction in fourth or more cardiovascular events. That's a lot of events averted. And this analysis of first recurrent and total events demonstrates, first of all, the large burden of ischemic events in statin-treated patients with baseline triglycerides above about 100 or so, because in fact, we had patients even in that 100 to 135 range. And importantly, then, the potential role of icosapentethyl in reducing this residual risk. And uh, finally, I just want to make you aware of something that came out relatively recently, an update to the American Diabetes Association guidelines with respect to icosapentethyl. They state that in patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or other cardiac risk factors on a statin with controlled LDL cholesterol, that's basically referring to the secondary prevention and primary prevention cohorts of reduce it. Uh, and with elevated triglycerides between 135 and 499, those are the numbers they went with, the addition of icosapentethyl should be considered to reduce cardiovascular risk. So it's a level A recommendation, which is their highest level of recommendation, both for secondary and uh, diabetic primary prevention. Now, they also state it should be noted that data are lacking with other omega-3 fatty acids, and results of the reduced trial should not be extrapolated to other products. And I agree. You know, patients that are taking these over-the-counter supplements that are unregulated, they have all sorts of potential contaminants, uh, other fatty acids that are subject to oxidation. So um, the studies don't find any cardiovascular benefit, and they're expensive, and there's really uh, no good reason. So I think it's important to actively de-prescribe those agents. And and even the prescription omega-3s that are um, uh, lower-dose ones that are out there, you know, they haven't been shown in, in randomized clinical trials, such as Ascend or Vital, to provide significant benefit. So uh, no good reason to be using any of those. Now, furthermore, these guideline updates say, an uh, important point, that statin fibrate combinations shouldn't be used, and statin plus niacin shouldn't be used either. And once more, as level A recommendations, the highest level. And that's because in the contemporary era statin therapy, there's no convincing evidence that fibrates or niacin provide incremental benefit. Uh, So really, again, that's a good reason if patients are on those, in addition to a statin on a fibrate or niacin, time to de-prescribe. So the final points I want to leave you all with, coronary heart disease remains the leading cause of death, disability, and healthcare spending in the United States despite significant advances in prevention and treatment. Patients with elevated triglycerides are at increased risk for coronary heart disease despite statin therapy. Icosapentethyl, or pure EPA, has been shown to reduce triglycerides and significantly reduce the risk of cardiovascular events for both primary and secondary prevention in patients with increased cardiovascular risk. And the number needed to treat with icosapentethyl to prevent one ischemic event is 21, which is comparable to statins and better than many other cardiovascular medicines. Well, thank you very much for your attention. Hopefully, these presentations were useful to you. Now, we'd like to open things up for some Q&A. Dr. Bott, we've had a a few questions come in today, and I think some of these are are very applicable to the conversation. 
why don't we start with uh, looking at the Reducer trial and uh, icosapentaethyl? What what was the mechanism by which the benefit was seen? Because it appears that it was not completely related to the lowering of triglycerides. Great question. The benefits were probably due, at least in part, to triglyceride reduction, but possibly also related to effects on inflammatory markers, such as CRP and anti-inflammatory benefits, potentially on other mechanisms, such as stabilizing cell membranes. That's been shown in various experimental models. There's also, in reducing a, a small but statistically significant reduction in blood pressure. So it's conceivable that multiple mechanisms of action are at play, but we are in the midst of doing a very sophisticated biomarker mediation analysis to see if we can attribute various degrees of benefit or proportions of benefit to changes in different biomarkers. So that might provide some scientific insight. Great. Well, and, and I guess one of the questions that came in was, you know, can't you just lower uh, carb intake? You know, where, where, where does diet factor in with all of this? Diet's an important part of the management of people with elevated triglycerides in general. They should be on a low-calorie, plant-based diet. Weight loss can be helpful as well for lowering triglycerides. Uh, other things, too, one would want to uh, make sure there's an excessive alcohol consumption, check thyroid function. But in terms of the reducit trial, you know, we made sure that patients were on statins and at good doses. We made sure that patients were given counseling regarding diet. And the benefits seen of icosapentethyl versus placebo were incremental to that. So, you know, I think as you look at this and you look at the, the benefits that were seen, is this uh, related to just the lowering of triglycerides? Can we use any product that will lower triglycerides and get similar results? That's a good question. The... American Diabetes Association recently updated their guidelines just a couple months ago and was very clear that their recommendations that gave a level A recommendation to use of icosapentethyl in, in both secondary and primary prevention, in that case the guidelines were referring to people with diabetes as far as the primary prevention goes, uh, that there it was specific to the drug and they were very careful to also give a level A uh, to not use fibrates or niacin in combination with statins because the data no longer support use of those drugs with statins. So the recommendation really is specifically for icosapentethyl. Now, there are other trials that are ongoing of different triglyceride-lowering agents, large outcome trials, and if those studies are positive, then perhaps I would say those drugs too could be used for cardiovascular risk reduction in people with elevated triglycerides. But for now, uh, the data only support icosapentethyl. Perfect. No, it, great. It, it sounds like there's more to come, and, uh, it, you know, as, as we all know, the science continues to evolve. Uh, one, one of the questions that uh, we received was, was around formulary and how are health plans uh, viewing these new agents as, as it re relates to their formularies and, and how they manage uh, those types of things. So uh, as it relates to formulary, I think for most health plans and for ours included, uh, with this new data that's come out of, of Reduce It, uh, we're taking a step back, looking at uh, 
the way we've structured our existing coverage, and then we're working with our uh, cardiovascular clinical program people to say, are there changes that we need to make? And uh, I think every health plan is a little bit different. One of the things that we do know is that there is still a significant residual risk that exists even after patients have been treated by statins. And so uh, making sure that we've got a comprehensive uh, program that allows for, for the total patient to be treated, I think, is important for us, at least as we look to manage the risk and, and find things that will benefit our patients. So, Dr. Bott, um, we, we've got a lot of patients that don't tolerate statins. Uh, Icosapentethyl, is that something you would recommend just for someone that can't tolerate a statin? It's a terrific question. We didn't study that and reduce it, so I would say if someone uh, has triglycerides greater than 500, the current labeling in the U.S. for icosapentethyl uh, uh, permits its use, and I think that would be a reasonable thing to do for someone with triglycerides between 135 and 500, sort of the reduce it criteria. You know, there, if they're at elevated cardiovascular risk, uh, one could consider using icosapentethyl, uh, but again, we didn't study that specifically because we required statin use in our trial because we wanted to make sure any benefits that we might see of icosapentethyl would be incremental to already patients being on generic statins. So, you know, that's how we did the trial. But biologically speaking, uh, there's no reason to think that it wouldn't work in a patient not on statins because uh, these are separate pathways of effect. Statins, of course, working predominantly on uh, LDL reduction and icosapentethyl working on uh, different pathways that are likely related to icosapentenoic acid. So uh, I, I think that it would be uh, reasonable in a patient that's at cardiovascular risk to do that, but that wasn't studied and reduce it and would also be off-label. Great. No, thank you. Uh, and, and whenever we talk about uh, primary or secondary prevention in, in cardiovascular patients, uh, we know that we use a lot of uh, anticoagulant therapies, whether it be warfarin or e even some of the newer uh, anticoagulants. Uh, are, are there problems in using icosapent in combination with any of these anticoagulants, especially in patients, say, with, with AFib? Great question. So, uh, first of all, with respect to atrial fibrillation, there was a higher risk of that in the trial with icosapentethyl versus placebo, uh, and there was also a higher risk for bleeding, and we plan to do a lot more analyses uh, looking at subgroups of patients on anticoagulants at baseline and the subgroup of patients with atrial fibrillation in their baseline. But what we have right now, at least, uh, and those analyses will hopefully come out in the next several months, but what we have right now is in the overall trial, uh, we know that there was no significant excess in fatal bleeding, no significant excess in intracranial bleeding, no significant excess in gastrointestinal bleeding. Uh, so it was other forms of bleeding, uh, less severe bleeding, that were uh, increased in the trial. So at least trial-wide, where about 10% of the patients were on anticoagulants, 80% were on antiplatelets, we know that the drug was reasonably safe. Again, how it performs specifically in those uh, on anticoagulants, we'll, we'll need to analyze further. Uh, likewise, with respect to atrial fibrillation, even though there was a small increase in atrial fibrillation trial-wide, uh, fortunately, there wasn't any excess in stroke, which is the most feared complication of AFib. In fact, a significant reduction in fatal or non-fatal stroke was seen in the trial 
for the entire population. Uh, once more, we'll look specifically in the months to come at patients with a history of atrial fibrillation at baseline and what happened with them. So more to come, but at least trial-wide, um, those are the results. Great. Thank you. Uh, that was the last question uh, that we have time for this afternoon. Uh, Dr. Bott, thank you very much for joining us, and we would thank all of our audience for joining us this afternoon. And a final thank you uh, to the sponsors that have made this program possible.